welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. Sorry it's been a little bit of a delay, especially with trying to get a lot of these things out the door after not being able to get a lot of plans ready towards the end of January, and then feeling a little hoarse after returning to the ice to play hockey for the first time in a month. So, I do apologize if I do sound a bit hoarse on that end, but at the very least, I've got quite a few ideas to set up at least leading up through February, since a lot of that's going to be catching up on a few shows for a few episodes leading into the winter season, as well as a couple of shows leading up to the end of the Oscars and movies as well, because of course I'm flipping between those and the Emmys. I was finally able to go through and watch the second season, or at least get started on the second season of The Bear, considering that was probably one of my favorite shows of the last year, as well as a couple of other things that are going to be getting some live-action treatment that I'm going to be able to talk about later in the episode, but outside of that, a few new teases of shows coming out of Aniplex when they ended up holding a couple of reveals on their website back in mid-January, where they have a new anime under the acronym O, as well as a new title under M, which I was thinking about Big O could have been a potential thing that they could have brought back, but then when they're going to be doing the exact same thing, it's like, oh yeah, no, we just have something underneath the letter M. It's like, okay, I will keep the Big O out of this, but outside of it, there's not necessarily a lot leading up to things that are rising up through the news, but Rising of the Shield Hero is going to be getting a fourth season. Take that as you will. I'm pretty sure I dipped out of the Shield Hero back in episode four, for various reasons that are just not really worth talking about in the sense that it was definitely not one that was getting me invested at all on top of the fact that any emotional stakes that they tried to build up are just really undersold, especially with how a lot of people that I'd seen have been feeling over the past two seasons. So I'm kind of glad that I ended up dodging a bullet there, but that's kind of how the majority of my reservations towards most isekai go, even though there are quite a few this season. Although there was another movie that ended up getting announced, which basically is combining the screenwriter for Love Live, Juki Hanada, as well as a video production group, Hooray, which does focus on a handful of music videos, and they're going to be coming out an original film called A Few Moments of Cheers later in Japan in the summer. Which is mostly just something that whenever anything music-related is involved, that's one way to get me invested into anything that they're trying to go through, original or otherwise. Since it's a very basic story where all they've given us is that there's a high schooler who makes music videos in his spare time, and he meets a teacher on the street who had given up on music, but she was essentially doing a lot of busking in the streets of Tokyo and having an opportunity to essentially freeform play on her acoustic guitar in the middle of the street. And so I'm curious to see how the rest of that's going to go and what relationship they're going to take. Is it going to be a Garden of Words section, or is it going to be a budding friendship between these two people who are passionate about different points of the music industry? So, at least in that case, only time will tell. A lot of the video game industry has just been turning their heads around for what everybody, of course, has heard about in this case, which is Pal World. And I don't think it's something that I'm going to jump into at this point, even though it's already sold over 8 million copies in its early access. And with a lot of the complaints and the potential lawsuits coming out through the Pokemon company, especially with all of the people who defend that company, where it's kind of like, oh, this is too ridiculous. Oh my god, why is everybody jumping on this kind of a bad wagon? This game is just going to be over. It's going to be dead in a few months. Whereas... They're the ones that still consistently play the same game over and over for the past two decades, and yet they're going to 
legitimately go on somebody who is trying something, which, to be fair, is a very bare-bones combination of Dark Souls, Minecraft, and Pokemon. But it's just kind of like, I could not care less about the rest of it. What I'm really curious about is, considering how ridiculously strict Nintendo comes to any of their properties whenever it comes to copyright, the fact that it's still been out for more than two weeks and we've only heard like a baseline statement from them definitely feels like they have something cooking so if nintendo and the pokemon company will let this slide then that definitely gives a lot more opportunities for people who have been trying to make a pokemon adjacent rpg game in the future and will give them a lot more liberty whenever they decide to think about any kind of games that they might create in the future but for me personally uh January 5th to the 12th is just going to be absolutely nothing but playing the Steam Access at Steam Fest for Stormgate. You are not going to be seeing me for quite a bit. That's kind of why I'm hoping the episode that I'm going to be putting out next week is going to be done before that, because I definitely feel like any free time that I'm going to be getting in between that week is going to be spent directly on Stormgate, as it's going to be the first opportunity that I'm going to have to step back into the RTS landscape. Ugh, man, just skating really fucking takes a toll on you. But at least for the shows in particular for the winter 2024 season, it's kind of been, hmm, at, at least the first 12 shows that, or the top 12 shows that are leading out the charts at this point, Seven of them are sequels, and five of them are either original or ones that are adaptations but are starting to go this season. But in particular, the ones that I have not jumped into, one of which is the most popular show coming out this season, which is Solo Leveling. Knowing where it's coming from, knowing the baseline, I'm not necessarily too curious about how it's going to go. It was definitely not helping itself where they did a two-episode premiere of solo leveling at the cons in America recently, but when they decided to air it, they didn't do it as a back-to-back, -back. they only did it as a single episode. So I would totally imagine for people who were excited about the reception that it ended up getting at the cons, watching the first episode and still being slightly confused as to where it's like, that's it? There was no other legitimate fanfare towards the rest of it, and it did finally start picking back up, but it definitely, even though it is the most popular show of the season, it is definitely not getting as much traction as I would have expected. Uh, but for the sequels that are coming out that have been stretching out to this season, um, I'm only, the only reason I'm not watching The Dangers in My Heart is because I am up to date with the manga, and I am content enough to just watch clips on YouTube to kind of see how they've been going through and adapting it, because... I like this story, for sure, but in terms of the fact that I didn't watch the first season, and now the second season is already in full swing, I don't think I will do that until it starts to catch up with the manga itself, which, considering the positivity and the affection that a lot of people have been giving off of this adaptation, odds are we're going to be seeing this manga get adapted all the way through. Um, but then apparently, I, I watched a handful of episodes with some buddies of Undead Unlock back when the first 12 episodes came out, and it definitely felt like it had a spike halfway through the first season, and now a lot of people are definitely just kind of like taking it on a slow decline, not necessarily in quality, but the 
amount of people that have kept up with it, is, it seems like it's been slowly dwindling over the past uh, 16 weeks or so. But it's not necessarily one that I've also been, like, jumped to. It's, the idea is interesting. And the one fight that I did end up going to see was cool, but also it's kind of not something that's essentially gripped me and brought me back into the world, so I don't necessarily know when I'm going to get back to it on my own, but I, I don't know. Time will tell. Mm, another show that's coming out this season that I've all... It's interesting. Um, Hokkaido Gals, which there is a longer title for it, but essentially there's only one show that I could be referencing, so I don't have to say the entire mouthful. I remember reading this in the first few weeks when it started getting published, and I really did enjoy it. I liked the dynamic. I liked seeing, even though it is a, I think it's a trio of girls pining after the same guy, and all of them are either Galish or Garu or some, like, relation in between. I mean, I know one of the girls is a gamer, XD, but it's not something that is, like, too ingenuous, but is definitely one that gives her a connection to the main character that the main girl does not. And seeing the back and forth between a lot of the shows coming, or a lot of the relationships inside of it, it was an enjoyable read, up until a specific point in the manga where it takes a huge turn, and I think people watching it this season are going to be fine, that that turn does not happen early enough in the 12 episodes that we're going to be getting, but it's... I don't know, it's just not... It, it definitely feels like it is a lighter version of Dress Up Darling, in the sense that she's a Gyaru in a winter hellscape, and she's still able to wear a skirt in that, whether it's just kind of like, okay, once you get over that, I don't necessarily know how much else it can give you, except for decent vibes, but I don't know, that's about it. Uh, and, then the two, and then two of the top 12 shows this season... Both of which are sus in their own ways, but they are very much being etchy on top of themselves. Although it definitely feels like... Now, these last two shows, which are gaining traction as they are two of the top 12 of the season in terms of popularity, um, Gushing Over Magical Girls and Chained Soldier are two which I'm following the discussions around, but it's not necessarily anything that I do need to keep up with. I do believe that it's definitely one that is garnering that specific audience for different reasons, although Chain Soldier wears that very much so on its sleeve while giving action, whereas Gushing Over Magical Girls is very much specifically pointed towards getting this set of characters in various fetishistic scenarios, considering that the main is definitely a sadist, but kind of seeing how the rest of this was going to go, since I... I'm trying to remember. The main girl got introduced in, like, there was a 300 waifu thing that Optional Objective and his buddy did, and apparently she, the main magical girl goes through an arc, but the rest of it is essentially a... like, not even thinly veiled. Like, this is, okay, I want to take these magical girls and put them in every other fetish imaginable for the section of an episode. And for me at that point, it's already it's already making waves in Japan. It is going to be selling. I think it's definitely already broken even for sure. I think it's either like five or six thousand currently pre-ordered on the Blu-rays. And they definitely know what they want to be getting inside of that. But for me personally, it's just kind of like I'll I'll just I'll just stick to my other websites. It's totally fine. Everybody can be fine with this. It 
there is a little bit of comedy, especially when apparently a lot of the characters do get set into horny jail, but yeah, it's it's definitely not something that's too much of a priority for me at this point. Now, for the shows I am watching or have been watching but haven't uh, caught back up on as of late, um, two of which are the uh, Daigo Firefighter and the Shangri-La Frontier, because both of which I'm kind of like three weeks behind, where they're both been fine rides, but it's never been too much of a priority for me to actually jump back into them or get invested, because, I mean, they're they're fine of their own ways. I mean, like, Fire Truck is 24 episodes, and... I really do feel like I'm going to be needing a little bit of help to get through those, either at times two or times four speed. I do have a really bad habit, especially when it gets it because I'm already here. I got I started getting bored with Fire Truck, unfortunately, ten episodes in, and then it had one decent episode. But for my kind of completionist mentality, if I am ten episodes into a twenty-four episode show. I can't just drop it. It's a lot easier because it's a week-by-week thing. But if I do... If it's got me that deep into its world, then I might as well just finish it on its own time around, like, when it's being completed, especially if it is a seasonal series. And then Shagri-La is kind of the same deal, where it feels like the luster is wearing off, but I'm kind of curious to see what different ideas that they're going to be able to fit in towards the end of the series... Only time will tell. A live-action series that is the same deal, where I watched the first episode, and I do have some expectations for, but the buddy of mine who I'm watching it with kind of wants to do it as kind of like a burst and not on a week-by-week section, but that is the live-action adaptation of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Lightning Thief, where I did enjoy the first episode, and I think it's eight or ten that they're going to have to complete the entire book, which I do believe is the right amount. And halfway through that series is going to be probably a handful of my favorite things that they didn't get to adapt in the movie that came out in 2010, I believe. But I am curious to see where the rest of this adaptation is going to go, considering that there is a lot of good stuff to be adapted towards the rest of this first book. And if we are going to have the opportunity to get enough people to watch this, will they do the entirety of the, at the very least, of the Olympians saga? Since this is five books, and even though each book goes through, I believe, a year? I think it is about a year per book, so we'll still have the opportunity for the actors and actresses that are still young here to grow into their roles and have that opportunity for a five-book franchise. So definitely curious because they already have the big pen instead of the clicky. That was probably one of the biggest things that got me excited because it's the small things like that that they're still keeping note of. And so I'm definitely curious to see how they treat the more grander moments that they were able to get inside of the novels and see if they can actually bring it up to that kind of polish that we have not been able to see for over a decade. And it's... hmm, I watched the first two episodes of this, and it's also one that I've kind of fallen off on because it's definitely like a time and place, and I don't think it needed to be 24. They probably could have cut this down to like 12 or 15 minutes. But Time for Torture Princess is definitely one of those where parades itself as a dark and gritty show for like the first six minutes, and then it shows its hand 
after that point, and it's basically going to be the energy that you're going to be getting for the rest of the show, which is a really nice, fluffy, feel-good, but very repetitive kind of joke as to how the rest of it's going to go, but I do think the jokes get a little more fleshed out when more characters of the Demon Army get introduced, and so it's not a priority for me at all because it was the same deal. It was a nice thing for me to read week by week when I was going into university and seeing it get an adaptation now. I do know that a lot of the jokes are still going to stay very one note with different variations on either relaxation or activities or foods that they're going to be able to tempt the princess with, but it's definitely one where I would find that anybody could enjoy this if they're looking to get a little bit more of a relaxation, although I do think that it should be at, at the minimum one and a half times speed, because for this very short gag manga to be a 24-episode show weekly, it's just a bit too much, so... I don't know. It's it's definitely depending on what you're looking for. But for the shows that are carrying over from the previous season, uh, Freyrin is still Freyrin. It is still one of the best adaptations that I've seen to date. And it is one of those where I would probably give a episode on, because I know where they're going to end once they get to episode 28, I believe, since we've only got, at the time of this recording, six more episodes to go. And still seeing how they have been able to enhance the experience of an already phenomenal manga to be given this kind of polish for this adaptation is just still stunning. Essentially, the mage exam that we're being taken, it's not... Uh, I guess a battle royale is a way that you can describe this, where it definitely is a lot better now because... For most of the stuff that was happening, and especially it's tough for somebody who has been reading a, not even a weekly publication manga, for, but for Freyrin as it's a monthly serialization. Having a lot of these arcs, since Freyrin can just be a single chapter episode or piece where they can tell a story and the story is done and they continue to move on in their journey. So whenever that episodic lining inside the manga turned into an arc, it always felt longer than it did, considering that you would stay, in this case, probably the mage exam, I'd have to go back and check, the mage exam in our time took about two years, more than two years actually, it was, it was about two and a half, and it was definitely something where, oh yeah, now they're actually, huh, so now we're moving on from this exam, it's, it just felt like it was so long. And then it gets into another arc, which lasted another two years, was just kind of crazy. Which is the only reason why people weren't as, I would imagine, as hyped and were not, like, really selling Freyrin as, like, one of the best fantasy stories in manga. Because when it, it started off episodic and then leading into two long arcs, and, like, not long by manga standards. Like, these are arcs that are anywhere between 15 to 25 chapters long, but in a monthly serialization, those feel like ages. You, we definitely did not feel like Freerun for the majority of the weights of those chapters. However, seeing a lot of this exam go by on a weekly basis has helped the pacing so much more, and just adding to the experience of watching this, because it looks phenomenal, the jokes are still landing, a lot of the new characters 
are being introduced. I completely forgot that Denkin was able to cast one of the most basic and powerful spells known to man in, in the most recent week, which I won't spoil for you, but it is easily, like, one of the better moments, and it it's just kind of like, man, I, I remember being attached to Duncan. Why was I so attached? It's like, okay, yeah, no, that was it. <laughs> His mastery o over some of the most classic spells is definitely something that shouldn't be underestimated, so it was, it was such a fun, it's still been such a fun ride. Uh, same deal with Apothecary Diaries. It is now slowly introducing a new antagonist, which I am very concerned about, considering that they are a mental force and has and who seems to have a personal relationship with one of the characters in the show. And so now that Mau Mau is slowly getting more and more embroiled into a lot of the mysteries and the inner workings of the palace, that this person might be interested is really getting me concerned. Because it's still good. All the moments are still great between uh, Jinshi, his retainer, and Mau Mau, and all the concubines. One of the newer concubines, I'm actually curious to see what her dynamic is going to be leading into. But it's still great. It's definitely difficult to say. I think there's only one other show that's better than it. Well, okay, two other. Like, Freyrin... I still like, but both are just on equal portions of, like, a 9 out of 10. Easy. But the one that is definitely probably my second favorite thing to watch this season is easily Delicious in Dungeon. Dungeon Meshi. Ah, Dungeon Meshi. It's another phenomenal fantasy show. Like, we are fantasy, classic fantasy fans are eating really good this season. Where you still have quite a few isekai that have been popping up over the past couple of weeks... Dungeon Meshi, with its zany energy and its colorful cast of characters and the dynamic that they're able to go through, Senshi essentially being the same level of badass and wise as Denkin in Freyrin, uh. it has still been a really great experience seeing all of these old geezers lead different parties in different ways and... Just having all of the personalities inside of the group just bounce back and forth, even though they are mostly... I mean, three of them are still... have been partying together for a while. But just the dynamic that Senshi brings into this, and how he relates to others, and helps them be better versions of themselves, and is still a very annoying and prags pragmatic geezer, but... How, like, the energy that he infuses and the passion that he does with the relationship and the overall biome and structure of the dungeon that he tries to keep stable is definitely one that is a twist on a dungeon that I have not seen in a while. I didn't start reading Dungeon Meshi for quite a few years. It's one of those where I watched or I read a couple of chapters in between the middle of the story and I was really invested... But then that was around the time that the anime got announced, and it's like, okay, I know that I like this source material, and I haven't really been spoiled too much on the middle chunks that I decided to read, so I'm just going to go into this and wait for the adaptation to come out. And we've got 24 whole episodes. This is phenomenal. We are going back to the structure of now there are projects and adaptations and companies that are that are strong enough in their conviction to let these series breathe, and because they know 
the quality of the source material, they are now giving 24-episode adaptations where you don't have to gamble, you don't have to see if the first 12 go, and then you can see the popularity that's gone, and then you have to either trade it to a studio or wait for an additional year to get the production started and seeing how they're going to wait. We are seeing so many opportunities, especially in terms of Dungeon Meshi and Freyrin and Apothecary, to see these shows get adaptations that are stretched out long enough where we can still give them the opportunity to breathe as well as not feel condensed into a lot of the adaptations that we've been getting. And I have been so happy to see this kind of mindset come back into play as it was something that was a lot more prevalent in the 2000s, but then with the rising popularity in the 10s, they mostly just wanted to get 10 to 12 episode shows out the door and they kind of throw a lot of stuff at a dartboard and see what sticks. But now if you have properties like Dungeon Meshi, like Freyrin, like Apothecary, that you know need to be expanded upon for more than 12 episodes, but they know the quality of the story is there and all they need to do is let the people inside the production do their magic. That is all I need to see. And after I do a little bit of IT work on my mic there, um, the final show that I started watching this season is... It's one where it's original, and the staff behind it definitely got me invested, and it definitely got me curious on how they would essentially take the ideas that they were going through and introducing. Since you have this being a Studio Bones anniversary project, it is an original cyber noir, cyberpunk, like part mystery, part mech... Uh, part tokusatsu, like all of these different things coming together. And you've got uh, Mononobu Hori, who was the director of Carol and Tuesday. You have the mecha designer from Mobile Police, Pat Labor, Rasafon, Star Blazers, the character designer from Cowboy Bebop, the music composition from Bell, and the screenplay writer from Across Delta. And all of these collective talents are collaborating on this one project it got me in interested and invested but the first episode came out and it the action was serviceable it's gotten better over the past like the the action scenes that have been coming out between episodes two and four have definitely expanded and definitely like got a lot more fluid and a lot more like creative and fun it's just the a, the major problem that i have with this is its world building, which is normally not something that I prioritize. In, in terms of like my hierarchy, the thing that I prioritize the most are the characters. But the characters themselves have been given so little information that there's nothing a lot for me to go by. And they basically set up a handful of scenarios to get you or introduced to this uh, more like Blade Runner. It's not necessarily cyberpunk. It is tokusatsu blade runner in this case where you have this taking place on mars or the majority of it taking place on mars in a world where you still have where in blade runner you have the replicants and in metallic rouge you have these neons and essentially the more i know about the world the less it makes sense about how we got to the current point we're at now since the first episode throws a lot at you where 
You don't know what's going on. You don't know why... Where essentially the main goal of the series is that you have this handler, Naomi, who is in con- in charge of wrangling uh, Rouge Redstar, who is also a Neon, who is charged with hunting down the Immortal Nine, who are Neons very much like her that can like shoot up and become Tokusatsu, you know, fighters. And so that's the basis of the story. It is about them. I guess hunting is just a very <laughs> it's it's they're not hunting. They're searching and then fighting and then they give them their hearts and then they just their hearts are these orbs and then they just move on and it's kind of like okay, these two are acting very cheerful al- along another. Rouge definitely has like a more childlike mentality because she hasn't She's got, like, the body of somebody in their early 20s, but their mentality is more of, like, a child, where it definitely seems like she's, like, mentally she's 10. She's very childish. She's hasn't been around the world long enough to get a proper bearing on things. She's just being directed by Naomi to, you know, hunt down the Immortal Nine and then just uh, get these hearts for her older brother, who is a part of another organization. Like, all of this stuff is just happening in the background. My problem is essentially how this world came to be, especially with every new piece of information that we get about this major conflict with an alien third party that tried to invade our galaxy and wipe humanity like off the face of the, like not just the earth, but to wipe out humanity. And humanity creates these replicants or neons to mass produce and help them fend off the alien threat. They, I guess they win because the alien threats are no longer, you know, going through, but there is, because there's animosity, I guess, towards these Neons, and the Neons are fully sentient. They are fully human, or close to what you can call human with their mentality and their emotions and their empathy towards, like, everything. If they didn't have these injection ports, you would just assume that they were human. But humanity, the only reason why they treat that, like, I don't get it, they can treat all the Neans like trash. They're not replicants in the form where they are governed by the three laws of robotics. And you, one of the robot main keys of that is they cannot harm humans. However, these Immortal Nine can, but we don't know why they're being hunted outside of that one fact. But the Neons are fueled by the this injection, this nectar. So in the... So the only reason why nectar is a main point is that, yes, it, like, Neons have to inject nectar every day or else they die. In one of the most unceremonious ways possible because they just shut down and then they get picked up by a dump truck and then they drive off where it's kind of like, man, so we made these robots and we really did appreciate because without these robots, we would have perished towards these aliens. But now that the robots are here, they were programmed with the laws of robotics to not harm humans, but they were also given... A soul, basically. They were given 
all of the proper attributes and mentalities and characteristics and personalities of being human, which definitely just seems like an oversight. If they want, it would have been a lot easier to create these androids with the three rules of robotics and not make them human. And then this entire story would just like lose its allegory of either, you know, racism or otherism of this xenophobia against the Neans, and that this entire thing would have would have just lost. Like you wouldn't have had to worry about it. But they feel like they the only reason why they made these Neans seem human is to inject a false sense of drama inside of the story, which didn't really need it. And then the fact that they made this nectar, which shouldn't by any means be ingested or injected into humans but it gives them one of the best contact highs in existence, where they basically took heroin and they made it fuel for these Neon robots that they need to survive. But then one random idiot was like, oh yeah, no, I, you know, I was having a bad day and I was kind of feeling like ending it and then I injected this nectar into me and then I felt like a million bucks and it was like the, the most potent drug I had ever had in my life. And, for, and somehow it's also the fuel for these things, which creates another, like, false pretense of conflict, where it's just kind of like, whoever designed these Neons, like, two major flaws off the bat, where it's just, why did you make their fuel give humans the best high of their lives, and why did you make them human if you wanted these machines of war to help you in an endeavor against an alien threat? Why would you make them human? Because if you, in the event that you lost, humanity's wiped. That's fine. That's totally it. In the event that you win, now you have these, now you have this workforce that still is human, but is essentially causing nothing but conflict across the entire galaxy that you're a part of because now they want rights but they can't harm humans and so that's and so they're essentially just never going to get what they want and so it's just this false sense of tragedy and sadness that should that just doesn't work inside of the story at all like we've already seen allegories for that and there was a reason why the replicants in Blade Runner wanted to go. It's because they had a short life. They were given a set amount of time for their bodies, and they were looking for more of a reason to live. And they could still harm people, they could still act in their own way, and yes, they were completely prejudiced against, but the reason why they were a legitimate threat and why it was something that was a part, naturally a part of the world, is that they could actually fight back. Like, you can't give me this newly formed android race of random people and then just may, try to make me feel sad about them because the, their very existence causes conflict and a lot of plot holes inside of this already comp needlessly complicated show. So, at the end of the day, the action's been getting pretty decent, I don't know about the relationship between the main two because it's not a good relationship to hold. It is literally just a 10-year-old war machine being, you know, pointed around by this random chick who is a really good, who's really good at her job in for reconnaissance, but we have no idea 
what her values are behind eating good food. And it's like, okay, we want you to be her handler. We want to watch, we need you to watch her go and point her in the direction of the immortal Nineans, who are also of the same caliber and type of Nian as her, and just kill them and recover their hearts and bring it back to us. It's like, okay, why? It's a lot of the why. Why are these characters doing the things that they do? And it's easier to figure out what Rouge wants to do because she's a child, because she doesn't know any better. But there are too many questions posited in these first four episodes, and none of them are answered. And so, and we also don't know, is this going to be a 12-episode show, or is this going to be 24? I would have to say 24, because there is no possible way for this original project with everything that they have set up in these first four to end in 12. There is just absolutely no way. So it is Metallic Rouge, as most original productions go, the reason why I keep coming back to them is that they could either be just unfortunate, depressing dumpster fires that just essentially collapse underneath the weight of their own ambition, or you do have the opportunity to make something original and to make something more akin to a modern classic that will stand the test of time. Metallic Rouge currently is not going down that path, but at the very least, I'm curious to see where it goes. So hopefully I'll be able to get this out today. I will get my movie-based episode out next week, and then probably the week after that, even though I'm setting up all these schedules at which I have no idea if I'm going to be able to complete them or not, and then the next episode after that will probably be either Letterkenny or a look 10 years in the past. Only time will tell. Cheers, have a good one. Thank you.